Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where the recent government shutdown has prevented tens of tourists from attending the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Museum. <laughs> you can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, 1680 AM, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids. 95.3 FM W237CZ Hudsonville and 88.3 FM WPJC in Pontiac, Illinois, and as always, streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Sup. And Justin Schieber. Oh my god, the Gerald R. Ford Museum is so boring. <laughs> it is the worst. <laughs> yeah. um, Good Watergate exhibit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, it has my favorite headline blown up to uh, massive size about when Nixon fired his attorney general. And the headline reads, Nixon discharges Cox. What? Uh, <laughs> that's my yeah. favorite. Nice, nice. nice, nice. Yeah. Um, I've only been in the museum to fill out a comment card. And I asked them, <laughs> I asked them to do an exhibit on the slaughter of the East Timorese. Uh, oh. People that was they haven't done that yet. Fun. No, Weirdly. surprisingly, they haven't. I didn't. <laughs> what a shock! I, I wanted uh, to make a quick announcement at the front of the episode here. Uh, on next week, on the twenty third October Wednesday, I'll be uh, at Ferris State University debating uh, Stephen Kozak on the existence of God. Um, You're for it or against it? I think this time I'm going to be against the existence okay. of God. Right. It might be fun to change that up sometime. Yeah, yeah. shake it up, man. The, yeah. the other um, side. And moderating actually is, is going to be uh, Jake and Hugo of the Bible Reloaded podcast, which is, if you don't know them, they're hilarious. Hmm. Uh, they they kind of read chapter by chapter the Bible and do commentary. It's very funny stuff. Excellent. Um, but yeah. So I'm, I'm excited about that. And uh, if you're in the area, please, please come. Yeah. And it's a free show, free, free event, not a show. Well, it's a bit of a show too <laughs> at, uh, at Ferris State University. Yes. Big Rapids. Uh, so check that out if you get the opportunity. Uh, coming up on this episode, we have an interview with former pastor turned atheist Jerry DeWitt. Um, we've also got a polyatheism, a stranger than fiction, and shocking new evidence that proves once and for all – that Jesus wasn't real. More on that in a moment. First, um, as of our recording here, the United States government has been shut down for two weeks. Hopefully by the time you're listening to this, that will have ended and the debt ceiling will have been raised. And if not, I for one want to be the first to welcome our new Chinese overlords. <laughs> Given that they will now own... Our country, people. Guys, it's a slim down. Why don't you calm the rhetoric? (laughs) Yeah, that's been one of the (laughs) most fun things about this is the the Republican apologetics for their move to shut down the government (laughs) has has really resembled that apologetics. I've I've seen I've seen more plausible stunts by people like Cliff Connectly than I have (laughs) from some of these Republican pundits. 
they can't seem to agree uh, whether or not they started it and it's a good thing and they should take credit or whether or not it's, it's a terrible Obama's thing and Obama is mm-hmm. taking the blame. It's Obama's shutdown but it's, it's Boner's slim down. That's right. That's right. And uh, Stephen Colbert, of course, had one of the best illustrations of this where he was playing a game with a child. Did you see this? Oh, it was wonderful. Yeah. Yes. It was great. Check that out. But uh, <laughs> He throws the game board across the room. Is that the one you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, it is. Uh, until until Johnny can make his move, he has to admit – he has to agree <laughs> to lose the game right. before he's allowed to move his piece. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, there are people who are really being hurt by this. I was just watching yeah. the news today about um, government employees who are still working but not getting paid. Yeah, um, Who are now going to food banks and stuff because they – they have no income coming in. Yeah, there's going to be foreclosures. It's, this is going We've had a salmonella to, outbreak with very yeah. little resources to help contain it. Mm. Um, Even if this stops before the debt ceiling, which you know, um, well, and then that's that's the real risk is yes. if we default. default on our debt. I mean, we're already in a recession that could not only destroy our economy all over again, but it could also affect foreign markets pretty poorly. Mm-hmm. Bad which news has a lot of us wondering, like, why would the Republicans continue with this insanity when so much is at stake. And a number of liberal websites are declaring a possible explanation for that mm-hmm. and that is it's the religious rights fault. It is Christian fundamentalists within the Republican Party that are bringing their dogmatic, uncompromising and paranoid and apocalyptic attitude mm. straight from their religion into their politics. Hard to imagine that that could happen. Yeah. A couple of articles here. The Radical Christian Right in the War on Government and the War on Government by Chris Hedges. Uh, also, Christian Delusions Are Driving the GOP Insane by Amanda Marcotte of Salon.com. Both are making this claim that if you uh, you look at the Tea Party faithful, they tend to be taken from the ranks of, of Christian fundamentalist sects and Chris Hedges goes so far as to say dominionists. Right, right. Mm. Uh, Including especially uh, Ted Cruz yeah. who um, has certainly made a name for himself in the last few weeks. And right. He's father, been really pushing this, yeah. this shutdown as far as uh, um, against the Republicans – Actually, the majority of Republicans in the party that yeah, they're embarrassed. By were it. Oh, for sure, yeah, yeah. Were they not afraid of losing primaries to mm-hmm. Tea Party candidates? They would be against the shutdown. Uh, Ted Cruz has really been rallying the yeah. hardcore of the Tea Party fringe into uh, into backing this. Of course, I guess just last week though he was talking about how terrible it is that the Democrats are keeping these World War II veterans out of the memorial. Right, right. But um, Ted Cruz's father is Rafael Cruz, um, who is a right-wing Christian preacher and the director of the – this sounds terrifying – Purifying Fire International Ministry. Oh, my god. Doesn't that sound like – Don't touch me. That sounds like a KKK (laughs) thing. Um, Yeah. I, it's not. Which but, they're pretty hard right. They're oh, yeah. uh, they're what you might call a dominionist organization. Mm-hmm. Therefore, replacing uh, laws with a godly government. I, Hedges made that connection between Cruz and his father, though I haven't seen anything concretely tying Cruz to that ideology. I well, heard exactly. I mean, that's the ideology that he was raised but, in. Yes. But yes, but certainly this, there, that plays as background noise, if nothing else. Yeah, for, uh, and, and a, a number of other points of evidence can be marshaled to show a kind of fundamentalist ideology underwriting some of this. 
for example, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, who we've talked about mm. on the show, is an incredibly conservative group within the Catholic Church. Uh, they supported the government shutdown because of the requirement that in, yeah, insurance okay. it's on contraceptives. We don't want people to have health care and we especially don't want them to be able to get contraceptives. Yeah. Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council. Uh, oh, oh, good. A voice of rationality. In yes, the yes. Has yeah. said, today is the day I will tell my grandchildren about when they ask me what happened to freedom in America. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picturing like some post-apocalyptic yeah. father and his son on a – which is it, which is the day that not the day of the shutdown, but the day that Obamacare went into effect. Right, right, oh, is what yeah, he's talking yeah, yeah. about. Not yeah. not because so, the government shut down, but because right. the government shut down. Which, when you think about it, the thing. the Obamacare was a democratically passed thing. It w- was right. even survived right. a challenge to its constitutionality in the Supreme Court. Yep. Right, and if Death anything freedom, is Jeremy. undemocratic, that's a freedom. Right, if anything is undemocratic, it's refusing to fund the government until right. And, a minority gets its way, and it's but important the, to, those to are just note facts. too that. <laughs> and, and you you alluded to this earlier. Is we're talking about a very small portion of the Republican Party who is really holding the entire nation hostage yeah. at this point. Uh, it's not the the entire Republican Party that necessarily agrees with this, but they are. You know, following along because they want to be yeah. elected. <laughs> Rick Phillips for writing for Christianity dot com recently said that Obamacare might be predicted in the Book of Revelation. And in fact, there's an email chain letter that's going around fundamentalist circles that is claiming that Obamacare will require citizens to have a microchip implanted. I've seen this several times. And that times. this is really? the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast, of course. Yep. You know, it's always hard to quantify how influential are these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the public policy polling firm, uh, this is a liberal group, so this might have a political slant to mm-hmm. it. Sure. They found that 20 percent of Republicans think that Obama is the Antichrist as opposed this, to this only 6 percent of Democrats, which I'm thinking <laughs> like 6 percent of Democrats that think Obama is the Antichrist. 34 percent of Republicans and 35 percent of independents say that they believe the new world order is a threat. I, you know, again, this is – since this group is slanted pretty far to the left, I, I really want to believe that those numbers have been cooked. Sure. <laughs> I don't want to believe that that's the case. Uh, the Pew Forum, which tends to be a bit more impartial when right. it comes to these things, has some figures for us too. And they're telling us uh, – looking at Tea Party members. So this data is a little bit old. Mm-hmm. But Tea Party members in general uh, – tend to have conservative opinions not just about economic matters right. but uh, about social issues. Uh, they're overwhelmingly against uh, abortion and mm, uh, right. black people, uh, <laughs> uh, marriage equality yeah, yeah. and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so we could say you know, that those uh, social conservative positions are typically more aligned with the religious right. Mm-hmm. But a deeper breakdown of the data shows that perhaps people we might consider part of the conservative religious right – are only making up about half of the Tea Party members. Only that's right. that's a, quite a substantial number of people, and enough. Although when you consider enough the Tea to Party drive their agenda, a, a small group within the Republican Party. Right, but right yeah, and um, it's amazing how much influence that that absolutely. small group has. Tea Party supporters, forty six percent of them claim to either not have heard of or not really have an opinion on the religious right. Forty-two percent say they agree with the conservative Christian movement and about 11 percent said they disagree. 
obviously there are a handful of more traditional economic libertarian conservatives there, but uh, but a, a large bulk of the Tea Party is supported by hardcore uh, religious writers. So I don't know if we can entirely blame this lockdown mentality. Dominionism. Yeah, and, and on so dominionism forth. and movements like yeah. that. But we can definitely show that some of the religious right authoritarianism has leaked beyond their religious commitments and into their politics mm-hmm. and might be fueling Stoking disastrous endeavors yeah. like this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit like that that mentality of, well, if, you know, if we do these things that bring about the end of the world, hey, that's good because end of the world yeah, equals rapture and or so more forth. so like it's not a it's not seen as a disagreement on healthcare or the right. appropriate way. It's it's seen as the Antichrist yes. is possibly yeah. instituting a policy that will lead to socialism and even genocide, mm-hmm. some people are saying. What's compromise mean to somebody who thinks that the president of the United States is Satan incarnate? Right. In a uh, black and white world, forgive the expression, right. th- there's no gray area. They're not the, able to like, see nuance yeah. and uh, that's that's more of what we're getting at. Again, it's one of the things on this show – we were hesitant at first to ever talk about politics, but so much of religion, which is our content area on this show, right. so much of religion and fundamentalism in in particular really does bleed over into our political lives. We can't separate politics I, I would from religion. I love it if we never had to talk about politics. I would love on the it show. too. Like if we were living <laughs> in another country and the US wasn't a factor. Right. Um, we, we wouldn't have to talk about politics nearly as much as as we do, but there's so much crossover because there is so much influence by religious groups yeah. um, on our politics. But uh, let's move on now to what is we're kind of burying the lead here guys because this is possibly the most important um finding in the history Absolutely of the true. Western world, right? Absolutely right, Dave. Um new evidence proves proves that Jesus Christ was invented by the Romans. Yes, yeah, so you've seen Richard Dawkins tweeting about it. Uh the article uh, came out on October 8 uh, by Ryan Gilmore uh, of uk.prweb.com. Uh, the article titled, Ancient Confession Found. We invented Jesus Christ. So the article says, American biblical scholar Joseph Atwell will be appearing before the British public for the first time in London on the 19th of October to present a controversial new discovery. Ancient confessions recently uncovered now prove, according to Atwill, that the New Testament was written by first century Roman aristocrats and that they fabricated the entire story of Jesus Christ. That is that's oh, thank amazing. goodness, man. We can just brush our hands off and stop this. Pack it up. We're done. I mean, thus ends our skeptic Sunday school sessions, that's right. right? We're done. We don't have I think to we worry about keep the going, religious guys. right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, yeah, this is uh, this is astonishing. He found anytime there's a headline um about a new finding that radically changes the thinking of any topic. It's usually important to use radical skepticism. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, this is, yeah. this is, I compare this, um, um, at will, uh, guy to about once or twice a year, some guy who never really studied physics 
will come forward with a paper and say, I figured Proved out perpetual Einstein motion yeah. or I proved <laughs> Einstein wrong yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's essentially what at will has done. Anytime someone comes forward, even if it's a brilliant person who has expertise, we should be skeptical about Absolutely. enormous claims. Yeah, and we should be especially skeptical when it's not a brilliant person with yes. no expertise, which is <laughs> what, where uh, Joseph Atwill is. Uh, Joseph Atwill got rich during the dot-com boom of the early oh, really? 90s. Is that where he came on, from? On his not... website, uh, his cre- under his credentials area, it says, As a youth in Japan, Atwell attended a Jesuit military academy where most of his school day was spent studying Greek, Latin, and the Bible. In later years, he continued studying, here's the credentials, hundreds of books on the origins <laughs> of Christianity, including the Dead Sea Scrolls. It- which you can learn a lot from books. Yeah. Uh, True. But at the same time, he is when he's making himself out he calls himself, you know, one of the foremost American biblical scholars, yeah. which is just a lie. It's fraud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh, insane. He's, he doesn't have any kind of professional training in this area. He's an avid reader. Mm-hmm. Which, and, and, and which is great. People <laughs> who don't have degrees in the topics that we're talking about most right. of the time, that doesn't mean that um, you have to have a degree in order to speak right. intelligently about something. No. Or we'd be but, impeaching ourselves if we exactly. said that because we are not PhDs in every right. area we're we t- talk about on this show. I don't show. even have a degree in the thing I teach, okay? <laughs> Let's just be clear here. Yeah, we're simply saying that these are reasons to be skeptical of exactly. giant of claims. Enormous claims. Uh, yeah. And your information is as only as good as the books you read and apparently Absolutely. – Apparently, well, he's Atwill has been book. reading some pretty shitty books. Yeah. Richard Carey has pointed out that Atwill's ideas are actually nothing new. Yeah. Uh, you can first find them in Bruno Bauer's book, Christ and the Caesars, published in 1877. Wow. This proposed a conspiracy theory basically where a family in, in Rome had created Christianity and all of the documents, all the Christian documents through Josephus who was adopted into the Flavian family mm-hmm. which was this, this brief dynasty of Roman emperors. Right. So these ideas – like any conspiracy theory, they pop up from time to time mm-hmm. and they usually get rebranded, slightly tweaked and then they're proposed to us as like startling new discoveries or yeah. new evidence. And even, even Atwell himself has been using these ideas like all the way back to, to 2001. Right. Oh, really? So, so they're not even new to him. him. When yeah. he published what? Caesar's Messiah, the yeah. Roman conspiracy right. to yeah. invent Jesus. So basically in a nutshell, the idea is that the Flavian dynasty, they had a power struggle to get control of the empire. And if you look at Josephus, uh, Josephus was adopted into this family. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at Josephus' writings uh, on the, the Jewish wars, you'll find striking parallels between the sequence of events of Christ's life and the sequence of events that went on in this in this war. As if someone is deliberately drawing parallels to Jesus went here yes. this war was. Right. Well, Jesus takes did. this to be a kind of code or, mm-hmm. a, or an internal confession that really Josephus then wrote the entire biblical accounts. And from what I understand, there's actually some – there's actually some weight to the argument that there are some interesting parallels between – Titus Flavius, mm-hmm. uh, as as is recorded by Josephus, and and the movements of of Jesus Christ, and and scholars have written on this. You have Stephen Mason, who's published an entire mm-hmm. volume called Josephus in the New Testament, right. 
and a few other scholars have written on it as well. And like usually you're concluding that you, you know there's been source bleeding, right? So right, of course. One Josephus text borrowed working, from another text. Right, right. So either the Gospels are working from some from some common source or whatever, or or Josephus has the Gospels, and they're and this is a pretty common thing in the in the ancient world. Now that's a rather modest claim, the idea that maybe one source was borrowing from another, and right. uh, and I I think the but the explanatory I think the power plausible is the same. account is that for example the Gospel of Luke might be borrowing from Josephus, mm-hmm. but he blows this up. Atwill blows this up into this huge conspiracy theory. Christianity was invented by the Roman aristocracy as a form of psychological control over the population. Why does he want to do this? You know, what would motivate them? The Jewish rebellion against Rome had gotten so out of hand that there needed to be a form of psychological control. They had to – they and so, created a propaganda uh, yeah. task force. And so they created a, a messiah mm-hmm. who was a pacifist. Who would not threaten the political or economic dominance yeah, but of Rome? Who says that everything is going to come to an end very soon? Right, right. <laughs> well, well okay, in which case, so, let's just sit and wait for it to yeah, end. Like, so, hey, let's. Um, and, and, and about the point of uh, you know this being a, a kind of reaction to Jewish uprisings and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the only real significant Jewish uprising around that time would be the the. The um, uprising of the Jews in 66 till roughly 70 when they were put down by the Romans. Yeah, and, yeah. And David Fitzgerald, an actual scholar, talks about this too and says basically there were there were two very small Jewish uprisings in over the span of uh, a century. Yeah. So this wasn't like a constant plot problem for the Romans. They had a lot of bigger issues and what, what uh, Fitzgerald points out too is – if they decided to use this kind of psychological, which is, as he points out, is completely makes anachronistic. An, anachronistic. Yeah, it, um, if they used it against the Jews, why didn't they use it against the, the larger enemies, the Gauls? Like the Gauls yeah, right? Yeah, right. The people who were actually causing trouble yeah. for Rome. Because clearly, every Jewish revolt here was not much of a problem for Rome. No, nor they put were it they down about pretty quickly. Religion and. He, he goes on to point out that there were dozens of different Jewish sects at the time, all of whom had a different idea of what the Messiah exactly. was. So they couldn't they couldn't really work from uh, Jewish expectations and try to fulfill those because yeah. there was such a, a diversity of views. Yeah, there wasn't uh, there wasn't like one movement that needed to be oppressed. When I first read this, the first thing that popped into my mind is if. You know, parallels between the Gospels and Josephus is nothing new. What Atwill is selling us is that sequence of events is too closely correlated to be an accident, that this is a kind of internal clue that one author created both of these stories. He claims that, quote, the Roman Caesars left us a kind of puzzle literature that was meant to be solved by future generations and the solution to that puzzle is we invented Jesus Christ – and we're proud of it. Yeah, and right. Which is always great when the when the yeah. conspir when the Illuminati or the group that's in charge <laughs> tips you off to their mm-hmm. powerful mm-hmm. mind control. Yeah, the secret the Gnostic knowledge. But yeah. the first thing that occurred to me is, uh, other than the v- most vague of outlines of Jesus' life, there isn't right. an agreed upon sequence of events. Yeah, four different the gospels. gospels with yeah. different, uh, and that's just the yeah. canonical yeah. gospels. Mark Mark has an approximate timeline, and when Matthew mm-hmm. and Luke borrow from Mark. They follow that. But outside of that context, uh, all of the events are jumbled around and there is no meaningful uh, sequence of events you can put to it. 
Yeah, that doesn't really serve on the interests of, of the conspirators. On top of that, you know, he's talking about the Bible, you know, in its current form. Right. Yeah. But these were these four gospels are only the canonical ones. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of other gospels circulating around uh with uh, about Jesus at the time. Now did Flavius Josephus just write all of those? Too? Did he write all forty gospels? Right, right. You know that that the ancient Christians in, would have in made different use of? styles and with different um, yeah, yeah. goals and, and approaches and to radically the different and, narratives. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, this, it's insane. Yeah. Beyond that, uh, Richard Carrier had some really good points mm-hmm. on this. To think that the Roman aristocracy could conceive of such a plan and try to execute it is ridiculous. Psychological For, warfare yeah. wasn't a big thing at the time? They weren't running psychological ops the same way we do nowadays. Right. Um, but you know, also people at this time, they, they don't have the kind of education in the Jewish scriptures and theology right. to even foresee this as a possibility or want to want to pull it off. He also points out, right, the canonical gospels weren't actually selected into the second century right. until way right. after, uh, way after this, uh, uh, Josephus could have written any of these things. And we know who were, we know who was debating what belonged in the canon, in, in the canon or not. That, and it wasn't, smoke screen, it wasn't the Roman aristocracy. It is a smokescreen. Josephus wrote little sticky notes on the good gospel. <laughs> right, right, right. Choose These this. are the ones. Right. Yep. <laughs> he also points out the, uh, the volume of contradictions is silly. If you're trying to, if yeah. you're trying to create this religion, you would think you there would be more uniformity. Yeah. 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 And as we've noted on the show several times, those contradictions, they're not random. They have a systematic mm-hmm. pattern. Yeah. Which there's a, there's suggests, separate purposes to them. Yeah, uh, that information would have to just be all of that scholarship would have to be just thrown out the window, right? Because these contradictions couldn't possibly have that shape or pattern if this was all, uh, you know, a plot by Josephus. And and also, I mean, there's the there's the quite obvious point that you know, if our first gospel, if we assume the usual dating method, uh, and that we put Mark at roughly seventy. You still have twenty years earlier writings by Paul, which completely presuppose Jesus, and that's right. a point that Bart Ehrman brings up. Yeah. So, so like, how do, how does that make sense? Well, he also wrote this the is stuff before the big revolt of the of the Jews, so it can't be in reaction to it. And there wasn't really yeah. any big revolt prior to that. You have the uh, what the Maccabean revolt in yeah. one sixty BCE. But but Justin, if you ignore. All of your knowledge. <laughs> this makes perfect sense. I mean, like if yeah. you if you know nothing about history, writing, uh, philosophy, politics, war, then this this theory works. <laughs> yeah, it is, right. It's right. solid. And actually, even if we do forget a lot of what we know, and we we buy this line that maybe there really was a mission to divert Jewish hostility and mm-hmm. change them into a pacifistic religion. What a stupid way to do it, <laughs> right? As far as why in the world would you try to avert Jewish hostilities by creating a religion where St. Paul, right, is saying you don't have to follow the Jewish law. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Why would you write it in and Greek? You're just trying yeah. to piss them off. And, yeah. Why would you write it in Greek, the language of the, of the, you know, the Jewish elitists and the, you know, the Roman occupiers? Right, right. It's just, it's just ridiculous. And, and beyond that, uh, and Carrier points this out too, the Christian cult completely failed in Judea. 
where all the where all the Jewish rebels were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It never caught on. It never it never Which really had too many adherents. People. <laughs> it actually only did did well amongst Jews in the diaspora, right? In, already in Rome, mm-hmm. or Gentiles who kind of had an affinity for Judaism but didn't want to get dick clipped. So, <laughs> nicely put. <laughs> I've got to spice it up for the ratings. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Can't keep this purely academic. <laughs> so yeah, this idea doesn't even get off the ground. And the reason why we discuss it, so I guess it's kind of ironic, right? This week's counter apologetics is more of an apologetic. <laughs> <laughs> We're not about on this show debunking religion at all costs mm-hmm. by any means necessary. Yeah. Un- unfortunately, though, you know, this has gotten around on. You know, Justin and I were both commenting on how our Facebook feeds lit up with mm-hmm. people going, hey, that sounds plausible, you know, or even <laughs> yeah. Dawkins himself is tweeting this as, hey, guys, look at this, right? Yeah, More evidence yeah. that it's a lie. And it's it's sad to me that uh, people on our side will sometimes grasp at anything that debunks yeah. the religion, no matter whether or not it's plausible or fits with good scholarship. And, and also it really just drives me crazy when I see William Lane Craig posting it and oh, being yeah, like, I know. look at all these silly atheists, right, the exactly. ones who hold themselves up as the beacon of rationality. It gives them right. such – when it's so such, obviously oh, bullshit, it gives, it gives Christians – such good ammo to Absolutely. go look at how crazy these skeptics are. Oh, and they are. never forget that stuff. I right. mean, the, the, they the will hold on to this creationists, for decades. the creationists are still bringing up, you know, fraudulent fossil discoveries like, or and, fraudulent. And Lamarckian theory. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> they are still to this day holding <laughs> that up as, well, hey, look, they were wrong about this. So what else are they lying about? And this in particular is frustrating to me because I'm, I'm fully on board with the idea that Jesus may very well not have been a historic figure, that this may have been – I mean like Robert Price talks about the uh, stained glass curtain. You know, There's so much misinformation between us and any historical Jesus that we will never know if this was a real guy or if it's a figure of myth. Uh, I'm perfectly willing to accept that he is a figure of myth, someone that was constructed culturally. But so I, I, I'm on the side of his conclusion here that Jesus was not real – but then to present all the wrong evidence for that, I mean, it's like arguing for um, global warming by saying, yeah, I mean, um, people are, are clapping too much and that heats up the sky and that's causing glo- global warming. Well, global warming's happening, but it's not happening for the dumbass reasons that you're arguing for. Right, this right. is a real thing. Let's look at the actual evidence for this as opposed yeah. to one, one of these days we're going to have to discuss uh, some some Jesus mythicism. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And just, I mean, it's... Because I, I, my, my view, I'm in line with the majority of scholars on this issue, but but I recognize that there are some more interesting theories out there, and perhaps they're worth entertaining. So yeah, we still need to have our little Richard Carrier Bart Ehrman square off. Yeah, on for the sure. Show. That would be that would be ding, such ding, a joy. Ding. That would be great. Maybe maybe we can do that as a. I'm as pretty an sure I'd be sometime. rooting for Ehrman, but I've been impressed with some of. Some of Carrier's more recent stuff. Yeah, not his attitude, a, but it's a really fun duel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe not so much as a person, but uh, yeah. but his some of his arguments are hard to put down. Uh, it's true. Um, well, let's move on now to our interview. Last time on the show, we had a bit of a discussion about 
atheist churches. Mm-hmm. Some of these, some of these groups that are popping up in England and America, atheist mega churches. Yeah, really. London, these are the ones where the they world. worship atheismo, mm-hmm. <laughs> the <Yeah>. great. <laughs> Right. But no, they're they're you know they're uh, assemblies of of skeptics just like us. But they have the kind of song and dance and okay. the trappings you know, of the church. Yeah, service. basically all the trappings. And uh, we've expressed some of our concerns or criticisms of that particular style. But all of us on the show admitted we've never actually we've been never, to such a thing. We don't know what they're like. So we had this great opportunity to talk to Jerry DeWitt who actually leads an atheist church. He's a former Christian minister and now a current atheist minister. And so he joins us on the show to talk about how he got into this business, first of all, uh, what they actually do in their services and how it's going. So here's Jerry DeWitt. Joining us in the studio today is Jerry DeWitt, a secular minister and vice president of Dogma Debate, LLC. Jerry serves on the board of directors for two organizations that we support here on the show, the Clergy Project and the Foundation Beyond Belief. Formerly a Pentecostal preacher, after 25 years of ministry, DeWitt deconverted, embracing atheism and humanism, but at great cost to his family life and personal relationships. He talks about his journey in his new book, Hope After Faith. Jerry DeWitt, thank you for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Just before the launch of the Clergy Project, we had an opportunity to talk with Dan Barker about his hopes for the project. And I've heard that you're actually one of the first ministers to get involved. I was wondering, how did you discover the Clergy Project and what impact did it have on you personally? Yeah, I I was within the first uh, 50 or so people that had connected with Dan for the Clergy Project. It's clean and simple what happened. Um, I felt as if I was completely alone. I was totally unaware of the secular movement or any of the secular organizations. I felt like I was about to step off into the void when I realized I no longer believed. And so the first thing I did was uh, I Googled Dan Barker, and the reason I did that is because I remembered his book back from the 80s, Losing Faith in Faith, mm-hmm. and that was the only – that was the only contact I had with uh, with a totally new world, and so whenever uh, when I searched his name, I then discovered the Freedom from Religion Foundation. I discovered that he was co-president, and this whole new world starts opening up. Mm-hmm. And I simply put in a call to his office, and he was kind enough to call me back. I was literally just looking for someone who might think I wasn't completely crazy, <laughs> you know, or would understand where I was coming from. And he said, you know, and, and so his take on it was not only did he understand because he had went through that process himself, but that through the years he had been connecting with several other people who also you know, had gone through that process or were going through that process, and that's when he introduced me to the idea of the clergy project. You're you're meeting all these other ministers who are in similar situations. To right. On a side note, I narrowly escaped your fate. I was actually yeah. training to be a minister when I deconverted. Right, so, right. So that's a great story I, as well. I look, I look at this and I I think there, but by the <laughs> grace of atheism, go I. Right. Uh, so you're meeting all these other uh, ministers who are wrestling with their faith or maybe right. are, are – maybe have completely – Oh, yeah. They've that. completely – to yeah. be part of the clergy project, you you are now agnostic or atheistic. Um, you've already made that transition 
personally. You just haven't made it publicly. Can you can you share any of the kind of the common struggles and trials that people in your position were going through? Sure. Um, I don't know if there's been any statistical data collected from the clergy project members themselves about their struggles. There there may be, and I may not be aware of it yet. But what we what we all go through, it seems like, is taking our faith, our religion, our theology very seriously. Mm-hmm especially for people who take the Bible literally. When you take it literally and then it's your responsibility from that source, from the Bible, from that book to then translate that into um, ministry, into your community, into your church, you can't help but encounter the contradictions. You can't help but encounter how, not just a contradiction from one page to the next or from one book to the next within the Bible, but the contradictions that exist between, uh, your humanistic values in, in, in your present day, you know, congregation versus the, the worldviews and the attitudes of people within the Bible themselves. And so, so all of that's bouncing around in your head. And if you take truth very seriously, and if you take a love for humanity very seriously, you're, you're going to have to try to reconcile that. So, so, so everyone that I've encountered so far, that's really, you know, it's almost like they, they've, they've been sitting down for years trying to work out the math, trying to solve this, this very, you know, uh, complicated issue. And eventually they just throw the notepad away and say, you know, <laughs> there's the problem. You know, the problem is, is that I'm trying to solve it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but many of these, uh, many of these individuals, they, they depended on their church congregations for their livelihood. Uh, yes. They don't necessarily have training that would allow them to just jump out, jump into the workforce and, and right. have the same standard of living that they were currently enjoying. You know, what, what is next for a lot of these preachers? We kind of know yeah. what was next for you, <laughs> yeah, or at yeah. least we're going there. Yeah. But, uh, but is there, uh, is there anything on the horizon for a lot of these individuals who've made this difficult transition? That's the most complicated part of the process because these, these are men and women who have responsibilities. If, if they start trying to, to solve this problem and realize that they can't solve it, um, because the equation is skewed. If they, if they start trying to solve this problem in their twenties, mm-hmm. then they've got a very good chance of moving out of ministry, getting a different form of education and going on with their life. Twenties and thirties. If they come across this in their late fifties, sixties, seventies, then obviously they can probably justify in their mind writing it out and getting to their yeah. retirement. But it's that middle ground late 30s to to 50s to where you don't necessarily have time to re-educate yourself or or to really regroup. And so what has happened, the closest we've come to having an answer for that is that the Stiefel Foundation has donated $100,000 to the clergy project that is spent in the form of grants where – where a third party comes in and helps build resumes and helps try to find employment for ministers who are trying to get out of the pulpit. That's excellent. Yes, it is excellent. And for more information on that, they should people should go to the website and contact Catherine, which is the executive director mm-hmm. for the Clergy Project. That's part of the reason why we why we are such big supporters of the Clergy Project on on this show and uh, and have been trying to follow it closely. Is I, I like the fact that it it. it it's important enough to have kind of a support group for these individuals. Give them people to talk to and work through their issues. Right. But uh, but it appears that the project is trying to go much further than that and, yes. and really provide various different assistance to to people's lives and and help them to 
uh, to get back on their feet again after this uh, after that difficult process. That's the ultimate answer. You know, one of the one of the illustrations or one of the examples, brother, that I I like to give about how complicated and devastating this process can be. And and don't get me wrong, I, I know that a lot of non-believers, they want to look at the minister and just say, you know, just just man up and, you know, do it. Just, you yeah. know, just walk to the pulpit on Sunday morning, tell everybody it's a bunch of BS, and then, you know, go get a job at Kroger's and just, you know, push buggies and, and, and be free. Obviously, it's not that simple. Yeah. And one of my, my examples of that is, is there's a particular minister within the clergy project who has wanted to come out publicly for two years now. But, but myself and others, we've discouraged him from doing that. Yeah. Completely discouraged him from doing that because the way that I've done this, I want everyone to, to truly understand. I need to be as clear as I can be. This is not the way to do it. The way that I did it is not the way to do it. The way that Teresa did it is not the way to do it, in my opinion. Uh, there's smarter ways of doing this that protects families and protects livelihoods and ultimately ends up with the same, you know, the same objective. This is, this is a painful course to take. So I, so, so this particular person has a spouse that whose life is completely dependent upon a very expensive medication. And this medication is only being afforded through health insurance mm. that this particular minister has through his church. And so just how much is a clean conscience worth? Right. You know, I mean, how much is it really worth? Is it worth telling your spouse, I'm sorry, but I, because I don't believe anymore? I know you married a preacher, and I know that we've been <laughs> together for 30 years, and we've raised our children, and now they're going off in the ministry, and everyone knows us as ministers. I know all of that's happened, and we've been building this for a long time, but, you know, screw that. I'm I'm going to the pulpit and telling everybody this isn't true. I, you know, hope you die peacefully. <laughs> you know, I mean, how, how do you – it yeah. seems like that's an exaggeration, but everyone's lying. Lives are, are that complicated? Yeah. So, so I think the Stiefel grant will um, will make a huge difference in the lives of future clergy project members. It wasn't there when I started, obviously. I, I recently read an article that you were quoted in. Uh, the name of the article was uh, "Skeptics Wonder If Ex Clergy Should Leave uh, Should Lead Atheist Movements." Of course, sharing your support for the clergy project, you you do note that there's some potential dangers with some of these uh, some of these ministers jumping right from their churches into suddenly becoming the leadership of the secular movement. You say, uh, "quote the the trap is that after non-belief, these ex pastors join the movement and find a new platform for this new truth." One of the joys I celebrate in escaping from religion and church is no longer participating in this unbridled authority and reverence given to the pastor. And then you note the dangers of letting a secular church fall into the hands of a cult personality and becoming just another religion. Yeah. Yeah, the, those last two pieces of the quote are actually from another person who was quoted in the article. Oh, Only okay. the first half was me, ah. but that's okay. That's okay. Um, so, so what happened was, was the, the author of that article approached me at a religious news writers conference and said, I'm already talking to this particular blogger and he says, here's the reasons he doesn't think that it's a good idea for ex-ministers to move into secular leadership. And so what I said was, I don't know anything about that because I don't know what his reasons are, but what I do know is that I think there's a danger for ex-ministers to jump into secular leadership, and I don't think the danger is for the secular movement. I don't mm -hmm. think the secular mm -hmm. movement itself is in any danger right. because of that. I think the danger is for the minister himself, him or herself. Okay. 
um, I, I don't think in any way would they be a liability to the movement. I think the movement can be a liability to them in their mm. personal lives. And, and the reason I say that is, is because, and don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about televangelists and I'm not talking about, you know, mega church leaders. I'm right. talking right. about the everyday, you know, 100, 350, 45 member congregation pastors. These people, no matter how much uh, some non-believers or lifelong atheists may not respect them, these people live a life of self-sacrifice. Uh, they sacrifice their time and their energy in a way that few other professions demand. Mm-hmm. Their families suffer because of this. My son grew up literally with me always talking to someone else, always counseling someone else. And so it is it is innate within these ministers to live a life of self-sacrifice for this higher goal, for this this religious goal. My concern is is that if they don't have a certain amount of downtime, Mm-hmm. then they will take that same um that same lifestyle of self-sacrifice with them into the secular movement and literally do their life a second disservice they need mm-hmm. to stop and reevaluate their own goals their own life goals it, it may be it may be that when they get completely free of religion and and the religious worldview they may decide they want to do nothing more than be a beach bum yeah. <laughs> and they've got a right to do that now, you know, as a non-believer and right. free of the Great Commission. They may be free to just go be a beach bum. There's nothing saying that they now have to be an activist or that they have to be in the secular movement as some type of leader the same way they were in religion. And that's really the point that I'm pushing. Mm-hmm. Even when I was in Christian ministry for years, I would tell my staff that uh, the minister is more important than their ministry. Interesting. That <laughs> that had to be taken. It wasn't always taken well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just it, it it obviously depended on the staff member, but mm-hmm. uh that was the point that I'd try to make. I had seen even in Christian ministry, I'd seen myself sacrifice so much and my family lose so much because of that sacrifice that it, I I found it difficult to ask that of yeah. staff members. Yeah. Yeah. Find a balance. Try to find that balance. And especially yeah. for people leaving that. Yeah. Uh it's such a radical change in worldview. It makes sense. Take a little time off. Yes. Think these things through. You That's know? right. I could see the temptation to be, and I think I see a lot of people who deconvert uh, go through this. The temptation is you used to have a worldview that was apparently watertight. It wasn't right. really. <laughs> right. But it seemed to all hang together. Yes. And uh, and no area wasn't accounted for somehow. Right. And I think people leave and they suddenly have this vacuum uh, in their worldview, and they try to rebuild that with right. the same degree of certainty. That's right. And uh, that's when you get people becoming, you know, joining objectivist cults like the Ayn Rand <laughs> folks or, uh, right. or or other dubious atheistic movements. Well, and and you know, within Christianity in particular, you have the you have the John the Baptist syndrome, where you know John the Baptist is quoted as saying, "I must decrease." You know, so that he, so that Christ can increase. I have to give of myself so that something larger comes to life. And I think we have to be careful. You know, religion isn't, religion isn't trapped within a sanctuary. It isn't trapped within the church grounds. Religion permeates our culture. It permeates almost every aspect of our culture. And there are things that we, even as secular people, that we do from a religious perspective, and we don't even realize that it's religion working its way into our lives. And so the idea that I need to lessen myself or enjoy my life less so that something greater can 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 come forward, 
Uh, that's okay if you've thought that through and you're doing it on purpose. But if you're doing it out of a habit from a previous lifestyle, yeah. then it's not as beneficial. Mm-hmm. So you are still a minister now. You are mm-hmm. a, a secular minister, right? Right, uh, and you you teach uh, or or preach, I suppose, at yeah. the Community Mission Chapel. Correct. Wow, that's a big change, though maybe not so much. Yeah. I guess I guess what I'm curious about is um, I'm a big advocate of secular communities, right? And uh, I, I think you know we we shouldn't just have discussion groups. We should have communities that really provide social support for our members. But I'm interested in how a secular church or an atheist church right. differs from something like what we have here at CFI Michigan. Right. And it and it may not differ that much. Okay. It depends on how each group is set up. What here's here's the way this this came about. Um, as I begin to tour, let me back up from the very beginning. December the first, uh, two thousand and eleven, I was fired from a completely secular job. I had already left the pulpit as a pastor, and I had stopped taking in May of that year. I had stopped taking new, uh, speaking engagements, mm-hmm. you know, because I'd been in the ministry for twenty five years, and so I was constantly being called to to speak here and to do this or do that. And I'd stopped taking all of those engagements, and so from May of two thousand eleven to uh, December. December the 1st of 2011, I was strictly working just like everyone else. I was a building official working for my best friend. Then word got out about this supposed very quick and abrupt change, you know, and and he fired me over this because of how tight-knit and religious our community was. Mm -hmm. So I was already um, an unpaid uh, executive director for recovering from religion at that time. And so somewhat naively between myself and and the other, uh, you know, uh, directors of recovering religion – we decided that if I would get on the road and begin to promote recovering from religion, that funding would come in and I would begin to be paid as the executive director. And so I'd have an income. You know, mm-hmm. that was the big dilemma was how are we going to, how are we going to buy Jerry some groceries? Right, you know, right. and so it's like we can kill a couple of birds at one stone. We can promote recovery from religion, get funding and hire you to be the executive director for pay. Well, we were naive about that. We didn't, you know, we, we thought we could do something that ultimately we were not able to pull off. But while I was out on the road, uh, even when I thought that I was just being normal and easygoing, people perceived me as preaching. They thought I was preaching to them. <laughs> and then, and after a while, then people began to really want me to do a little preaching. Mm-hmm. And what I began to discover as I would do that is there was apparently a nostalgic need within the secular movement, within the secular community, the Mm -hmm. larger secular community, where it actually did some people good. Now, don't get me wrong. Some people, when they hear me preach, it brings back horrible memories of abuse, and and, and they're repelled by it. But the majority of people who've come from the same types of backgrounds that, you know, you and I have come from, they – they're moved by it. They enjoy it. It's almost refreshing. It, it almost creates a certain amount of closure for them that they haven't had yet. Well, the more that I did that, the more that people began to say, well, you know, maybe maybe we could create a service where it really didn't seem out of place for you to preach. And I'm not talking about full-blown, open-throated, Pentecostal right. screaming and hollering, <laughs> you know, but more emotion. People begin to say, you know, we feel like we're missing a certain amount of our emotional lives mm-hmm. uh, in our meetings. 
So the group from Lake Charles, already a group of free thinkers, they asked and said, can we, can we put a secular congregation together where we can have music and we can have preaching and we can have testimonials and we can feel comfortable with allowing a certain amount of, of emotion, uh, but it all very self-contained, built on a solid foundation of reason and science, um, and, and the walls around us will, will be set up with secular views. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's that's what we do. So it's it's really just kind of a supercharged meeting that most people are attending already. Okay, can you? Uh, I, you may have already answered this, uh, but can you kind of walk me through a, a typical? service. Uh, do you meet on Sunday mornings? Well, actually, we meet on Sunday afternoons okay. because it seemed like it was a little right. too much of a stretch <laughs> to do the Sunday morning. Over, uh, too many <laughs> yeah. hungover atheists. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Atheists. It's already a stretch just to meet on Sundays to start with, you know, but to <laughs> right. do it at 10 o'clock in the morning. But some do that. Some, yeah. you know, some do that. We meet at 2 o'clock on Sundays. Okay. And um, and at the at the moment, our schedule's been very sporadic because I've been touring with a book and mm-hmm. working with Dogma Debate and adding all these extra things. So, so you know, we're, we're meeting meeting sporadically but when we do meet uh, it starts off with music we've had we've had what we refer to as can music you know recorded mm-hmm. music we've also had live bands come in and so so if you when you walk in towards service time the music's already going to be playing there's going to already be a certain amount of atmosphere that's being mm-hmm. created and the songs are geared towards whatever the message is going to be for that day okay you know so we try to we try to push all this into a, a singular focus that the person walks out feeling as if they they've not only they've not only heard a point intellectually but they have felt a point right and if the point say for instance um, one of the last messages that comes to my mind was 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 actually the man in the mirror. We'd had one of the members of the congregation had had said, "Can we can we play this song?" He's a big Michael Jackson fan. Yeah, <laughs> he says, "You know, can we can we play Man in the Mirror?" And I'm like, "Yeah, you know, let me work on that because there's some really really good points within mm-hmm. that." And so so the point of the message simply was was that that everything that we do needs to start with investigating ourselves, looking at our own lives. You know, mm-hmm. just like I was saying with the secular ministers, before they become secular ministers, they need to take that break. They need to look at themselves first. And so all the songs are geared that way, um, and people are free to, um, you know, if, if they wanted to clap along with the song, if they want. Matter of fact, one of the most beautiful sights I've seen so far in our last service, the music was playing, and some of the kids, I guess maybe they were um, probably anywhere from six to nine years old, felt so comfortable that they begin to dance. They got up from their seats and began to just dance around and you know and play with each other and and there was a there was a celebration, you know. And so that's that's the atmosphere that we're trying to create. Uh so then then you uh you proceed to a message. Right. We is... have a message. That's right. And and I think the last message uh I think it only lasted like about 17 minutes, you know. Okay. So we're not okay. so we're not, not standing a, up at a yeah. pulpit, you know, banging banging on for an hour. Right. 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 And you mentioned testimonials. I yeah. I'm interested in how how does that go? I mean, what do yeah. how do you initiate it? Um I I would be afraid, you know, you have your little testimonial time, and yeah. no one wants to talk, and no one wants to speak. Oh, it's all, it's always the opposite. Really? You know, people people are excited. The the danger with the testimonials, and and it it will start off basically with with something like um, one of the trustees of the group. I say, you know, do, do you have something to say? Would you like to say something for a moment? You know, express you know how happy you are with what we've got going on here, or whatever. The 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 closest we come to anything awkward is is our goal within Community Mission Chapel is that if a believer comes in, 
that the believer, if they leave offended, they only leave offended by what they didn't hear or didn't see, not what mm-hmm. they did hear or did see. You know, that's the reason it's not it's not fair to call it atheist church. That's yeah. what the that's what the uh, the media wants to do. Right. You know, we don't even really refer to it as church, but it's definitely not atheist church. There's no such thing as atheist church. Right. Um, but we we're being completely secular, anti supernatural, but doing it in such a way that it that it doesn't even look as if we're trying to promote atheism or okay. deconvert anyone. Okay? okay. And so the tricky part with testimonial services is is that um you know, a few of the leaders who really get the mission, they stand up and they talk along lines with the mission. But then when another person stands up, they may be they may want to rip and tear a little bit, right. you know, on that sorry religion and that church down the road and, you know, but that's part of the process. That's pretty as well. universal to any atheist uh, any any meeting of non-believers I right. found that the the Audience participation time can be a little cringeworthy. It's always dangerous, but you know, but also insightful too. I don't. It is negative. Yeah, Um, and and it's a and and it's a need. You know, it's a need that the person has to get something off their chest. And and the same thing happened in the church world. You know, in my Christian ministry days, when you'd have any different, yeah, (laughs) that's right. Anything, anything could happen. Uh, Somebody says something really profound, and then the next person was talking to Jesus in the shower that morning, and you're just yeah, Yeah. you're hanging your head. Oh, and I've seen people accidentally cut. During a testimonial, right in the middle of service, you know, so anything can happen. I'm processing this. We've been talking about this a little bit on the show lately. Uh, when we heard about the Sunday Assembly churches in in England right now that are right. spreading throughout, and um, sounds like it's the same, generally the same approach. Maybe you can help me out here because I'm torn in a couple of different directions. Um, I might be one of those people in your services that really does enjoy a good sermon. Right. In fact, I still listen to sermons uh, occasionally because I I enjoy it as a as an art form. Right. Uh and more than that, I feel that this is not just my feeling. I think there's good social psych to back it up too. I I think we we do need we may not always need moral instruction, but we need moral conversations and and reminders. Yeah. Yes. We know we need to go beyond just the stuffy intellectual stuff. Sure. And uh, because activating those concepts in our brain is what helps motivate us to be better people. Certainly. Uh, and I can also see a, 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 a strength in having a kind of – sorry to use a Christian buzzword, but um, we do need accountability partners sometimes. Yes, we need certainly. people to hold us to our goals and our values. So all of that leads me to feel – that this might be a good thing for some people. For some. That's the important part, for some. As a matter of taste, it might not fit all, but for those who are looking for it, it might be a a very positive thing. Where I become critical is uh, you and I have both spent enough time in the religious world that we know the cult of personality that can develop around a minister. That's right. You have one individual up there who's seen as a, you know, as somewhat of an expert intellectually, as right. possibly a spiritual guide uh, or, you know, ethical guide for everyone. And these devolve into kind of pastor worship. Sure, absolutely. Uh, have you seen that to be a problem? Are, are you concerned about that yourself? Yes, I'm very concerned about that. I think that is a, um, I think that is a huge liability that we have to be very careful with. And the way that we deal with it is Q&A. 
Okay. No one is allowed to get up and speak their mind without also being subjected to questions. Good. And so, so for instance, if I get up and I give a 17-minute sermon, uh, now generally anything that I say is is not going to be authoritative to start with because right. I know better. I know better, but that doesn't mean that things can't change, mm-hmm. you know, or that uh, egos couldn't get involved, or you might start to feed off of people who. Maybe maybe they're very new to skepticism, and they come in, and and that's what they're expecting. They want to belong to a yeah. personality cult, you know. So a lot of things can can change. There's a lot of variables, but in our standard procedures, you have to then stand there and take the questions. Mm-hmm. Okay, you, you have to stand there, and so if somebody heard something, or or if it made them think of something that maybe you know um, is a little different than what you're proposing, you you have to you have to take that, and yeah. and, and you get you get. Grilled, yes, too, you get on that's a right, regular that's right. basis. Uh, um, you know, well, I don't think I get grilled that that much because I I start off before you know. First off, I don't ever use any notes, so I just sit around and think about the thought and let it percolate. But I come at it with the intentions of making sure I don't say anything authoritative to start with. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> and so there's not a whole lot to challenge by the time that I'm through. Yeah, you know, but um, but yeah, there will be questions, and people will. So far, the questions have been more practical questions of like, well, I hear you saying this, you know, kind of tutti frutti idea, you know, but what does that really mean? How do you really do that? You know, and and I think that's important, but with the practice. Already being in place, I think it protects us in the long run because if for some reason if I did up, you know, if I did get up and say something that was authoritative or, um, or I came across as knowing something that other people don't know, you know, Mm -hmm. like I have a magical source or that there's something special about me, then the procedure is already in place for that to be called, Mm -hmm. you know, to be called into question. Now, now do you have like assistants or other teachers? I, I guess what I'm thinking is that for me, if somebody said, I want you to design a congregation for the non-religious, one of the first things I would do is try to spread around the leadership Absolutely. roles and uh, avoid right. that kind of uh, groupthink scenario. Right. It's not – you know, here's what's important. In, in my old Pentecostal days, um, the the church, whether whether on paper or in practice, so belonged to the pastor. Yeah. That many times you didn't even call the church by the church name. Hmm. You called it by the pastor's name. You know, really? for instance, I mean, I, uh, if someone said, where do you go to church? I would have said, well, I go to Brother Lloyd's church uh-huh. or okay. I go to Brother Robertson's yeah. church or I go, I mean, that's, that's how much it was the cult of personality. So one of the ways that we avoid that is, is that I, I'm nothing but a speaker. You know, obviously they look to me for guidance because I have many years of practice in this, you know, in, in organizations, but we have a board of trustees and, and it's theirs. It's theirs to make. You know, I thought we were going to have service on the 6th and, uh, and, and they all face, you know, we all have this ongoing Facebook, you know, dialogue and they Facebook messaged me and they said, what made you think we were having service on the 6th? And I said, well, I thought we were going to try to have it on the first of every month, you know, so it'd be easy to remember. And they're like, well, we, you know, we're, we're, we're not ready to do that, you know. <laughs> and yeah. so, so it's not mine, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't belong to me. Once we've grown, we've only been at this a few months. Uh, once we've grown, I think we'll take on more of the practices of say Mike Alce with the Houston Oasis, okay. which is about three hours to our west from Lake Charles, Louisiana, um, and and they have regular they have speakers they have speakers mm-hmm. come through. Mike's not always the speaker, so I think that is a very important part of the process. Hmm. 
I guess it's pretty early to be asking this, but I, I am curious uh, what kind of bumps on the road you've encountered along the way. What uh, This is kind of a new thing. Other people yeah. are doing it, but uh, right. it's a pretty new thing. And I'm I'm wondering what are what are the things you encountered that you never expected to encounter? Uh, let's see that I never expected to encounter. I don't I don't know. Well, let's let's, yeah. let, let's yeah. lower the yeah lower the bar here. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what what things have you encountered yeah. bumps along? Well, the road that you've encountered. So, so here's here's what's a little different with us. I, I don't know a whole lot about Sunday Assembly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that they've they've reached out to us. They've been very very kind and um, and and they want a relationship. And there's so few of us that are doing this, you know, doing similar things that I, I think will end up a little uh, like our own little fraternity before it's over with. Okay, you yeah. know, but I don't know enough about them. What little bit I know, it seems to come across as as being uh, humorous and being almost satire in a way. And we're trying to do something completely opposite. Mm-hmm. We, we're taking ourselves very, very seriously and what we're doing very seriously. You're so not parried, parodying. We're, we're not parodying anything. Uh, except for when you, I hear that you like to say, uh, can I get a Darwin? Can I get a Darwin? Yeah. yeah. But I don't do that in our CMC services. <laughs> okay. Right. Thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't do that in that. Yeah. That, that is meant as a parody for sure. Um, and so, so what, what I've encountered that, um, I don't know if I expected it or not, is is making sure that we're being serious about what we're doing mm-hmm. and that everyone who's joining in knows that we're trying to be serious, that mm-hmm. this isn't this isn't an attack against religion, this isn't a parody of religion. Uh and it's not even meant it's only meant to be a substitute for religion in the in the same extent that um that it's meeting a nostalgic need. That's why I yeah. agreed with you that it's for only a very particular type of person. I don't think this is the wave of the future. I don't think this is what um, the whole secular movement should look like mm-hmm. at all. I think this is for a very, very particular type. And, of course, we've ran into the same issues as everyone else. Financing is a huge issue. Um, it's not that we don't have people who, who are willing to give. It's that we're uncomfortable with asking for money. Yeah. You know, right. we're, we're not, we don't want to pass the plate because that looks, you know, too soon. That looks too much like church. Um, we don't want to try to insist on people helping. As a matter of fact, myself and the other trustee members are the ones who have paid for the venue every time we've had service so far, yeah. you know, and so we're, we're almost taking up no money. So that's an issue. I, I get that. Yeah. I get the attitude because I shared it when, when we uh, were building our group here in West Michigan, there was a huge, we just didn't want to ask. Yeah. We, we eventually had to get over that. Yeah, yeah. And we we had to say, you know, not everyone who asks for money is a con artist, right? And uh, some people might think that if you mm-hmm. ask for money, but you yeah. have to support what you're doing. This you is know? this can't be done uh, on a purely volunteer basis. That's right. And and the sooner the secular movement as a whole learns that, yeah. Uh, the better chance we have at creating a brighter future. We're always going to be stymied with the attitudes that exist, you know, presently. If, if we were doing anything other than something that so resembles church, I would already be over it. Yeah. You know, if I was running a CFI group, you know, in Lake Charles, I'd already be over it. Yeah. And, and I'd be insisting and, and, you know, <laughs> beating the podium saying, everybody empty your pockets. We got to change the future. But it's only because that what we do does resemble church so much that we're extra cautious about it. Right. For instance, I mean, I've made a pledge not to receive a salary. I mean, this mm-hmm. isn't an income for me. This, this cost me and the other trustees mm-hmm. money to do this. And once again, that's because we're trying to avoid, yeah. uh, you know, all of those other things. 
Interesting. Well, it'll be fun. It'll be fun to watch it develop and, and yeah. see where it goes. I, I know some concerns that some of my other co-hosts had about a more of a church model is that uh, many of us struggle trying to explain to people how non-belief yes. is not a religion. Right. And when when we have groups like this actively emulate, we make it harder on model, you, don't we? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of a conflict in message. Yeah. Uh, yeah it what, is. what are your thoughts on that? It's not my problem. Yeah. Okay. That's that's my thoughts. Is is I you know what I have is is in the deeps, and I know that sounds rude, but that's that's all it comes down Sometimes to. Sometimes you need to say that, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it's only because I've wrestled with this issue so much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Matt Delante uh, with uh, the atheist experience. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he was one of the first ones that uh, I began to bounce some of this off with, and he said, you know, let me help you. <laughs> you know, let me help you help me because it was the same situation. I was making it harder on him, and so and so we're, we're trying to to build our own um, language around this that that might protect us a little bit but what you have in the deep south the church the church culture is not a subculture of the deep south it is the culture it's one of the first questions anyone is going to ask you whenever yeah. you move into a new place and so so it and that's why I refer to this as meeting a nostalgic need. Mm-hmm. This is something that people in a very particular situation feel like they must have to round out their experience. Yeah. You know, to to create closure. So when you're presented with these needs, when when the only reason not to do it is is to say, well, you know, this is going to make it a little more difficult in debates. That's just not a good yeah. enough because yeah, it's not really a legal problem. It, it, it used to be. I remember some yeah. people were concerned with Michael Newdow and other right. things that uh, yeah. uh, that legally this could create difficulties if it gets enshrined in right. case law and stuff. That right. atheism is treated like a religion. Well, that battle's kind of already been lost. So right, uh, that's right. Okay, it's uh, it's yeah. a, it's a good point. Yeah. In closing. Uh, William Lane Craig has had some things to say about your church. He's obviously brother he's, Craig. Yes, brother Craig is about apparently taking note of what you're doing. Over I'm flattered. There. Yeah, um, I'd like to. I'd like to read it. It might be a little lengthy, but sure. I'd like to read this. I haven't heard it, so that'd be great. Have you respond to it? Craig says the growing trend of spiritualized atheism, uh, such as the Community Mission Chapel. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> mentioned you by name. Has no objective meaning, value, or purpose. The congregants may surely find a subjective value for mimicking Christian churches, but this feat is ultimately built upon a scaffolding of personal preference. Um, so, so what's my opinion on him thinking that yeah, what we um, do no, is meaningless? No objective purpose or meaning or value. You might imitate a church, but this is just going to be based on your personal preferences. Yeah. Well, that's not surprising, you know, mm-hmm. coming from him. No. And and I understand that. And and this is just more of, for a lack of better words, more rhetoric that's similar to his debate tactics. Yeah. You know, if you don't believe in God, then everything's meaningless, so it's over with. And that in itself is very subjective. That's right. his point of view. He cannot see any meaning outside of having an ultimate creator, some form of absolutism. Well, obviously, we've gotten over that. You know, mm-hmm. we've graduated from that particular worldview, and we we understand that um, the meaning that you bring to your own life is just as meaningful as the meaning that you receive from someone else's sacred text. And so we we don't feel like it's um, even if it were to be something that was subjective. Everything is, and we find great meaning in life itself. So the secular values that we that we, um, for lack of better words, preach. You know, at CMC, 
um, it is to remind us of of the inherent meaning that exists within our lives simply from the fact that we are here mm-hmm. experiencing life, that we are here, that we are the only part of the universe that we are aware of that's able to perceive there is a universe in the first place. How much more meaning do you need than that? So, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised. Well, good thoughts to conclude on, and uh, thank you, Jerry DeWitt, for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Uh, I hope I hope your pro- I hope your project is successful, and I'll be watching it with great interest. Uh, before we go, is there anywhere I can direct my listeners if they want to learn more about your book, uh, sure. your, your church, or any of that? Sure. Uh, probably the quickest way to get to all of our information is jerrydewitt.net, mm-hmm. and uh, they can continue to listen to us on uh, Dogma Debate as well. And of course, they can go to hopeafterfaith.com and find any place to get the book. Great, great. And you can also find links to all of those websites at uh, at our show website, www.doubtcast.org. Thanks again. Again, Jerry DeWitt for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Make sure they remember the audiobook because it has my irritating voice all the way through. <laughs> now that the interview is over, we talked about William Lane Craig's objections to an atheist church. I didn't mention the article it was taken from. It's from Spiritualized Atheism Has No Meaning, Value, or Purpose by Malene Korb, quoting William Lane Craig here. Atheism's church without God is a blatant exchange of the truth for a lie. The growing trend of spiritualized atheism, such as the community mission chapel, has no objective meaning, value, or purpose. The congregants may surely find a subjective value for mimicking Christian churches, but this feat is ultimately built upon a scaffolding of personal preference. In in a way, I almost agree with Craig in that I agree we don't have any objective in the way that he means it as far as metaphysically objective, eternal having as if the universe has – ordained some sort of purpose or role for each of our lives. Yeah, no such meaning exists. Mm -hmm. But I look at that comment and it bothers me because he seems to be implying that you either have this kind of grand metaphysical, ontologically real purpose for the universe or it's all on a scaffolding of personal preference. Like it just comes down to – what I happen to like. Yeah. It's a little bit of that postmodernist uh, uh, dig they like to throw at us. Yeah, sort. well, it's a forced choice yeah. because there's so many options between that theistic view of the world and a total subjectivism. And, and not to mention the whole uh, because we lack purpose and meaning that mm-hmm. therefore – he wants to argue that therefore uh, life is absurd. Right. But what he doesn't get is that if there's no purpose or meaning, then it can't be a bad thing either. It just can't be a good thing. Right, right. So it's like it just doesn't even – his argument doesn't make sense. Yeah. The way I see it, maybe we have the the roots of our values are in a subjective experience, mm-hmm. the experiences we have of joy or suffering in this life. But from beyond that, you might be able to say some objective and impartial things about what would help us to live happier and healthier lives and to avoid a lot of human suffering. So we could choose purposes for our lives that might ultimately be rooted in the subjectivity of our experience wouldn't be purely subjective, right? As far as we could come to conclusions based on impartial facts 
about human nature and about what actions will aid us in living a more fulfilling life. But beyond that, it strikes me that William Lane Craig might actually have a, a bit of a challenge here uh, that he hasn't noted or tried to respond to. That is the very notion of purpose. Perhaps William Lane Craig, Craig can say if there is a God and he created us with a purpose in mind, we do have an objective purpose. But it's quite another thing to say we know what that purpose is yeah. or that we can uh, we can actually say with confidence what purpose God has for our individual lives and how we ought best to follow him. And along those lines, we actually had a comment on our blog that I think was very insightful um, by the blogger Counter Apologist. Last time on the show, Vicki Garrison was talking about the, her idea of spiritual abuse and the idea was that as she was suffering with this abusive you know, and demanding husband and she was suffering having all these children, she didn't know what was God's purpose for her life. Should she divorce her husband? Should she stop having children? Should she get away from this abusive context? Or is it actually that God is trying to use these things in her life, right? right? She doesn't seem to be in a position to know. Right. And uh, counter-apologist echoes this, this theme in his, in his comment. He says, in her interview in this episode when she started talking about spiritual abuse, it struck me as being related to a counter-apologetic argument, the idea that skeptical theism might lead to moral paralysis. We should pause right here. Now, real quickly, skeptical theism – is the idea that we uh, we can't know all of the goods that God has in mind for us. It's meant as a theodicy, a defense against the argument from evil. If God appears to allow certain evils, uh, we don't know in the divine mind what ultimately will work out to good. So right. we can't really say that God doesn't have a greater purpose in allowing these evils to take place. That is everything so, I've ever heard my mom say. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a popular response. Mm -hmm. Counter apologist picks this up and and shows how this could wreak havoc on one's, you know, real real day-to-day -day life. He says this relates to Vicky's account of spiritual abuse where she internalizes the problems with her marriage and the problems for her children that came about as a result of following what she thought was God's plan for the family. When she speaks about recognizing opportunities to object or escape to the quiverful doctrine, she wouldn't do so because she would think, what if God needs me here to intervene in the life of my husband? Mm -hmm. It seems to be a terrible real-life instantiation of the epistemic problems that would plague someone who took the skeptical theist, theist answer to the problem of evil seriously and consistently. I'd even start to wonder – if people in the quiverful movement go to such extreme lengths because they take the epistemic issues brought up by their by their views of the Bible so seriously. Mm -hmm. So to spin this into an argument against Craig, well, pat yourself on the back, Craig, because Craig, the, I guess the background here is that Craig, while he doesn't call himself a skeptical theist, he marshals arguments very much like oh, this he in is, defense he is of the – in every sense but yeah, the name. In defense of you know argument from evil. So Craig can pat himself on the back saying that God allows him an objective purpose in his in his world. But what good is it when you can't say for sure what that purpose is? Mm -hmm. When at no point can you really take that notion and break it down into specific actions as to what course your life could take. I might say that a more secular, a more atheistic view of purpose in life, uh, yes, it might be grounded in our subjectivity. But at least we can say we don't have with an some confidence, issue, yeah. right? 
what we should do to achieve the ends that we've chosen for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that is something you simply won't be able to do on Craig's account. Well, anyways, I bring that up as a bit of a teaser because in uh, the next couple of episodes, we're going to have a philosopher on who deals with some of these issues with skeptical theism specifically. And he's going to make the claim that not only is it a problem to morality and purpose, but it would completely undermine uh, any coherent Christian moral worldview. All right. We have that to look forward to. And now let's turn to some polyatheism. Today in polyatheism, we're traveling to Central Asia, or as I like to call it, the very, very far west. It's a globe, circle. Right, right. Uh, Everything's west of everything if you go far enough. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, And we're going to take a look at one of the most powerful gods of Hinduism, Shiva. Shiva is the third part of the Hindu triad made up of Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the sustainer, and then Shiva, the destroyer. As the god of death and destruction, Shiva is a fearful figure worshipped by warriors and found um, at uh, cremation grounds. He can also be seen wearing a string of human skulls and sitting on a tiger skin, which he flayed with a single finger. He's so powerful and so destructive that the other gods have to keep him doped up on a drug called Soma so that he doesn't accidentally destroy the world. Yeah, Soma. Uh-huh. Those of you who have read <laughs> Brave New World will recognize Soma oh, yeah. as the drug used to keep the masses happy and having their orgies, yep. which is more or less exactly the same thing that it does to Shiva. Kept him laid back and horny because along with being a god of destruction, Shiva is also paradoxically a fertility god. His role as a fertility god made him uh, quite the ladies' man and got him into some trouble from time to time. There's the tale of the 10,000 rishis whom he tried to convince to become his devotees, uh, but they thought he was trying to put the moves on their wives, and so they tried to curse him. Uh, When he ended up wearing both the tiger and the snake that they sent to kill him, they stepped it up a notch and sent an evil dwarf. Ruh-roh. Tyrion? <laughs> oh, Tyrion is not evil. Tyrion is Tyrion. Who's Tyrion? Oh, Tyrion's great. Game of Thrones, Peter oh, Dinklage. Guys, I'm sorry. Tyrion Lannister, he's the best. I've been playing Grand Theft Auto. I don't know. When yeah. they kill him off, I'm not watching the show anymore. No. <laughs> he's no. not good. And uh, I, I got to say, Game of Thrones is close to my heart because I, I've actually um, recently been cast to play the young George R.R. R. Martin in uh, the biopic. Oh, cool. Because I'm fat and I have a beard. That was a joke. Anyway. Uh, oh, that was a self-depreciating. That was a self, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You sometimes I, do bit I, roles for I things. I even so. have a uh, George R.R. R. Martin-style hat that I've been wearing. So, yeah, it's uh, – mm-hmm. I've made some mistakes with my life. Uh, <laughs> Shiva's reaction to the evil dwarf attacking him, he starts dancing on the dwarf. And his dancing was so good that the skies opened up so that the heavens could watch him dance. Uh, all, all right. Drunkenness, orgies, and dancing. Are we sure Soma isn't really Molly? <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's not that crocodile stuff. Ooh. Oh, dear God. Um, it might just be ecstasy. Eventually, the Rishis threw themselves at his feet. Uh, Shiva's dancing skills don't stop there, though. He was known as the Lord of the Dance long before Michael Flatley claimed the title. 
and he created the world by doing a jig. Actually, it looks more like a can-can if you look at most of the depictions. He's doing, you know, high kicks and stuff. But after he tuckered out from all the dancing, he'd sit down and then the world would fall out of order and into chaos. Only by threatening him with a dwarf or something could they get him dancing again and reordering the universe. Like other Hindu gods, Shiva's appearance is unique and filled with symbolism. He wears a snake around his neck, sometimes also around his arm, his waist, and so on. Both it's be- a very versatile accessory. It really is, it, and it looks great. Mm-hmm. Um, both the Ganges River and a crescent moon can be found issuing from his high-piled hair. His neck is blue because he swallowed a sea of poison from a giant snake. Just a ton of snakes in Hindu mythology, mm-hmm. just all over the place. Um, he's smeared with ashes to su- suggest his ascetism, and sometimes he's depicted as half male and half female because in him all opposites are reconciled, which is helpful because he represents many of the opposites that need to be reconciled themselves. Oh, and he has three eyes. One story of how he got his three eyes involves his consort Parvati sneaking up behind him and putting her hands over his eyes. This little game of guess who turns awry when the sun darkened and the world began to tremble with fear. A smoldering eye erupted from the middle of his forehead, literally burning away the darkness and started melting the Himalayan mountains. But don't worry, Shiva restored the mountains to their original glory after Parvati said she was sorry and asked him very nicely. Couldn't have you just said, like, stop that? They always go to ridiculous lengths in these myths. Yeah, well, you know, someone puts their hands over your eyes. The best way to deal with it is to grow a new eye. It works. Um, In yet another myth, uh, Parvati nearly caused the destruction of the world when she grew bored with Shiva's meditating. Uh, she convinced the god of desire, Kama, to remind Shiva of his wife's needs by shooting him with an, in the heart with a flaming arrow, like kind of a Cupid on steroids scenario. Another god, however, intervened, recognizing that if Shiva were not allowed to finish his meditation, the process of creation would fall apart and they'd all be screwed. So he killed Kama only to bring him back to life later. Or, alternatively, Shiva himself may have killed Kama with a uh, blast from his nasty third eye. I feel eye. like you're putting commas in all the wrong places in these sentences. Don't you, though? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's always getting in the way. It's okay. He was well-educated. He was an Oxford comma. Uh, then Parvati uh, gave up, thinking that Shiva had no interest in her, and she went off to sulk. Not long after, a young man stumbled upon Parvati and praised her and tried to woo her out of her ascetism. Come on, baby. Stop denying it. Let's have some fun. And by it, I mean everything. And by fun, I mean something. Because ascetism. Yeah, yeah, got it. Got it. Stuff. Uh, Parvati (laughs) denied the young man since she was well-practiced in that sort of thing and then got angry with him. But before she could really take take him on, uh, the man revealed himself to be Shiva, who then promised to always show his love and devotion to her. And then they went off and humped like bunnies. Hey, look, baby, I was only making the world. Couldn't you wait? Right? Uh, Humping like bunnies is not really an adequate simile, though, because their lovemaking was so rough – 
that it almost tore the earth apart. Uh, it's like Godzilla versus Megalon, except instead of fighting, they were they, had, they were doing it rough, bumping uglies. Yeah, uh, it was so bad for the world, not for them, that Shiva had to pull out and spill his seed into the river, which then gave birth to a six-headed war god. So Damn, without even consummating, yeah, <laughs> yeah, wow, you don't get more potent than that. Uh, so there you have it, Shiva, the Hindu god who can kill you with a look and create the universe with a dance, god of death, destruction, fertility hermaphrodites, stoners, an enemy of snakes, tigers, and dwarves, and just one more god worth not believing in. And now let's turn to A Stranger Than Fiction. U.S. accuses two rabbis of kidnapping husbands for a fee. This one, ladies and gentlemen, is so much stranger than the title would have you suggest. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Um, so. I want the movie rights to this right now. Absolutely. Uh, Jeremy, <laughs> your wife has, has come to me, Jeremy, and, um, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah? I'm sorry it comes to you this way, but she wants a divorce. And being that you're ultra orthodox, this is called a get. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not going to give her a get. Well, then, Hell um, no. what we're going to do is uh, hire some rabbis to kidnap you and and shock your genitals with tasers <laughs> until you agree to divorce your wife. Holy cow. Okay. Well, in, in that case, um, now I'm beginning to wonder why we were even together in the first year. Right? right? We're talking about Mendel Epstein, a uh, orthodox, ultra-orthodox, ultra-orthodox rabbi yeah. in Brooklyn of mm-hmm. all places. Like, I mean, I guess – I could see this happening maybe in one of the ghettos in, in Jerusalem or something. Or Jersey. But but for me, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is happening in Brooklyn. Yeah. Is, so uh, blows my mind. But yes, he's uh, orchestrated the kidnapping and torture of reluctant husbands, uh, husbands who multiple refuse. Multiple men. This is not a one-time thing. He's yeah. done this multiple times. This is a service, times. a continuing yeah, service. Yeah, and, and he's been doing this probably since the, since the late 90s. Since the 90s, so yeah. So he's been at it for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, usually what happens in these situations is if the man refuses to give his wife the the divorce permission, the get, the get. Yeah. Sometimes the uh, the rabbi will pressure the husband uh, by making sure he can't go to synagogue or something like this. Uh, apparently, uh, Epstein's taken it to a whole other level. Uh, what he does is he will charge you ten thousand dollars for the first for the rabbinical decree permitting violence. So, <laughs> so he's that. like, eh, for ten thousand uh, dollars, I'll give you God's stamp of approval on Every your ass. Every time kid. we talk about <laughs> Orthodox Jews, I am blown away, and I shouldn't be anymore. I am blown away by the, the loopholes they will go to yeah. to yeah. avoid breaking the rules, and even to to, to get God's permission to use violence. Yeah, yes. yeah, that, that's to do this other thing. That's like, ten grand. The yeah. fifty grand mm-hmm. to hire others to carry out the deed. Yeah. Rabbi Epstein had assembled his, quote, kidnap team, unquote. Which is no quotes necessary. That's what they do. They're a kidnap team. They were going to kidnap somebody, beat them, tie them up, shock them with tasers and stun guns, including on the genitals, Mm -hmm. until they agree to a divorce, which I think that wouldn't, like, take all that long for me. Nope. It it would – by the way, this was your wife's idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay. Uh, okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. (laughs) Um, We're all set. 
but uh, but he was caught when during a sting operation. Uh, the disgruntled Orthodox Jewish woman he thought he was dealing with was really a federal agent. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's that's how that one ends. Bad but, news. It, yeah, and it's <laughs> I mean it, it's horrifying that this was happening, and for what a decade almost. Um, but the the other disturbing level to this <sighs> is that. Jewish women and and he's he sets himself up as an advocate for women's rights. Right. Uh, Orthodox Jewish women cannot divorce their husbands of their own choice. They have to get their husband to agree to divorce them. So there is a real problem here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jewish women are do not have equal rights, but kidnap and torture is not really the best way to mm-hmm. even the playing field. Either. Well, or ultra-Orthodox Jewish men who listen to our show, which I'm sure, you know, oh, numbers dozens. in the thousands. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, you know, just you know, take that lesson to heart. Unless you want to get tased on the nuts, you yeah. better And better I wonder, go. I have to wonder how much, what was it? You said it was 10,000 for the rep, for the rabbinical decree to, the decree. to allow the violence. Yep. How yep. much would it be just to ignore the whole part where you need your husband's consent to divorce? Right. 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 <laughs> Can't you get a decree for that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you can get a decree, say, yeah, you can use tasers on this guy's balls. You can't get it. Yeah, I feel says, like those are uh, women are people too for those five right. minutes. Those are at least the a orthodox degree. way to do this on a budget. I mean, sixty thousand dollars is a lot. Of cash. <laughs> it's not cheap. You have to be very well, and that that also speaks to the desperation of some of these women to get out. Yeah. And we're talking about potentially abusive relationships or whatever. So there's a real terrible thing going on underneath this terrible and ridiculous thing that uh, he got arrested for. The article says uh, how such violent practices, if proved, would have been able to persist for so long may be an indicator of the challenges that local law enforcement agencies face in trying to conduct investigations of insular religious groups, um, including the ultra orthodox. So, so that, I mean, that, so this has been going on for quite some time is, is what the story is suggesting. Yeah. And well, one, uh, one rabbi accused him of, it came forward and said that he, another rabbi said that they had done this to him in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And, um, apparently, uh, allegedly, um, the reason they use tasers and shocking as torture is because it doesn't leave as much physical evidence as, right. say, beating right. someone up. Mm-hmm. So it's much harder. I mean, that, that was his justification is, look, if, you know, if we shock them, he said this to the undercover officer, we, sh- we shock them, there's no sign of, of physical violence, so the cops just kind of throw their hands up and ignore right. it, even they if don't he does know what come to forward. Do. So, yeah. Kind of brilliant, and it's been going on for a long time. Uh, it's good that uh, hopefully now they put a stop to it. Apparently, that's kosher, though. I mean, uh, well, if you get the right decree, I guess. You know, it's amazing. Seems to like about. a pretty big loophole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh well. But that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, we'll be back soon with more. In the meantime, you can log on to iTunes or Stitcher. If you like that Stitcher thing and write us a review or whatever it is you do on Stitcher to tell people that you like it, um, you can write to us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can find us on YouTube, on Facebook, and on Twitter at slash doubtcast. And we'll be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. 
To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. 